All right, as we finish the book of Exodus this morning, we will be covering chapters 35 through 40. Now, one of the reasons that we're able to do such a great task this morning is because much of the material that is contained in chapters 35 through 40 has already been stated. It's already been stated uh, in chapters 25 through 31. The, the Lord has given Moses these instructions, and, and he's given him his commands. In chapters 35 through 40, we have commandments for the book of the law, we have commandments for the tabernacle, and, and all these different uh, nuances over these things. But now as we come through to chapter 35, these things are recorded for us again for the specific purpose of helping us understand that the children of Israel were obedient. Because previously, in chapter 32, we saw that they were not obedient. When God had given them the very, just the basics, the Ten Commandments, and they broke the first and second commandment right away. As Moses is up on the mountain and he's spending time with the Lord and getting instructions here, some of which we will see this morning, Israel is down at the bottom of the base of the mountain where they've made this covenant, this promise with the Lord to be obedient, to act in response to who he is. And so thus far in their short history, they have a track record of disobedience and failure. And so now when we come to chapter 35, we get to see that they are indeed obedient to carry out the Lord's command. This is one of the most important things for God's people, not just the children of Israel, but for you and I. Oftentimes, there is a specific divide between our doctrine that we believe, but then our practice of that doctrine. We don't often carry it out. But that is not how it ought to be. The Lord tells us that if you love me, you should keep my commandments. There's a hallmark of those who love God, that they obey him, that they listen to him, that they keep his commandments. So much so that even the psalmist says in, in, uh, in the great Psalm 119, one of the longest chapters in the entirety of scripture, over that whole course of, of the psalm, he says again and again, I love the law of the Lord. I delight in your statutes. Again and again, he speaks about how much he loves God's word, his commands, his scripture. He loves all the things that God has told him to do. Because loving God and obeying God are bound up together. So we ought to be obedient to God when he calls us to do something, when he asks us to do something. Now for you and I, what has he asked us to do? Now, there might be smaller things that maybe the Lord is calling you to specifically, but the primary thing that he has asked us to do is to obey the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That he is our ultimate desire. He is the thing that we are ultimately after. That there is no other God. There's nothing else that captures our attention. There's nothing that will sit upon the throne of our hearts in his place. He is number one. He is the center. He is the thing that we ultimately find our joy and our delight in. The great commandment, number one. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Our love for God also ought to uh, beget love for others. Because God loves people. God loves others. And so because God has set his love upon us, because God loves us, we as God's people ought to love what God loves. And God loves people so much. So much so that he gave his own life for the very same people that annoy us, that we're, we think are obnoxious, that we disagree with, the same people that come against us and speak evil of us, that we would consider to be our enemies, God loves them. He loves them so much. And we ought to develop that kindness, that love in our hearts for those people. Now, of course, you know, we're all sitting there with that caveat in our mind. Well, I don't agree with what they're doing. You don't have to agree with what they're doing. Let God sort that out. You do your job and you love people. God will sort out all the stuff that they agree with or that we don't agree with or he doesn't agree with. I'm not going to be in charge of that. I'm going to try my best. It's hard enough just to try to love people, try to navigate all that other stuff. It's crazy. We want to love God and we want to love the things that he loves. And the th- one of the things that he loves is people. And so we want to be faithful to that. And because he loves people, then he's given us the great commission to go and make disciples of every nation, preaching, teaching them about who Jesus is, the beauty of our Savior, the way that we have been rescued, making disciples, not making converts. We're not just getting people to check the right boxes and say yes, but we're doing life with them. We're walking with them like Jesus did with his disciples for three years, walking alongside them, teaching them, letting them make dumb mistakes so that he might come along and be like, eh, maybe let's not do it that way next time. He was there patient with them, even so patient with one who would ultimately betray him. He knew that Judas was among his disciples, but yet he allowed him to kick it with them anyways. He was like, hey, come hang out with me anyways. Wonderfully amazing and absolutely scandalous love. Like, that is another level. But this, these, are, these are some commands that God has called us to. The great commandment. Love him. Love our neighbors. Let people know about Jesus. We want people to meet Jesus. And so we cannot say that we love God, but not be obedient to him. Now, there might be other things that God is calling you to practically, you know, with your skill, skills and gifts and talents and callings and careers that God has placed in your life. Maybe the Lord is calling you to specific things. I would encourage you to be obedient, to do what he's called you to do. Don't be correct in your doctrine, but atheistic in your practice. We want to obey what God has called us to do. Now, God has called his people in Exodus chapter 35, well, I guess really in 25 to 31, to some specific things. And as we look, we're going to do a quick summary here of chapters 35 through 39, reviewing some of the things that he called them to do. And here, here is the... the um, the confirmation that they did indeed do these things. In chapter 35, <clears throat> God calls his people to obey the Sabbath. God's people were to keep the fourth commandment. He calls them to this work of building the tabernacle, but even in the midst of that, he tells them to rest. 
they're supposed to build this tabernacle for God that he's given them specific commands for. And if anybody would have had an excuse to be like, I'm doing this for the Lord, they would have had an excuse to say, oh, I'm not going to rest on that day. But they did. They, they were called to be obedient. They were called to obey the Sabbath, to rest even from the work that God specifically commissioned. And what this does is it demonstrates our trust in him when we rest on the Sabbath, when we obey God and keep the Sabbath. Say, Lord, my life is not in my hands. It belongs to you. You're going to have your way, and I'm going to yield to you. They kept the Sabbath. In chapter 35, we also see that they participated in giving contributions for the tabernacle. Now, God told uh, the children of Israel, or Moses to ask the children of Israel for uh, an offering. Now, these uh, contributions for the tabernacle were a free will offering. These things are not a tax. The giving that they were going to participate in was entirely voluntary. There was no uh, bill that they were getting. They weren't fulfilling an invoice. This wasn't something that God commanded, but it was something out of a response to who he is. They are responding in kind. It's a free will offering. And so they are, uh, Moses is to ask them for this offering in chapter 35. We see in chapter 36, or 35, the construction of the temple begins. We see that they uh, are beginning to, this is beginning to take shape, and this will carry on through chapter 36. And throughout the, uh, the tabernacle, they are, use these three specific colors. It highlights for them. We have the color blue, the color purple, and this scarlet color. These colors are, are symbolic Blue is representative of heaven. Purple represents royalty, of course. And scarlet is representative, representative of blood. And specifically, we would see that this will come to its ultimate climax in the blood shed by our heavenly king, who comes down from heaven, who is royalty. He will shed his own blood on our behalf. In the, tabern- or in the tabernacle, in the construction of this, they are to have a veil. They, these things are to have the same colors that are symbolized here, these blue, purple, and scarlet. And there are to be cherubim woven into the design. This was the original uh, angel that guards the uh, Garden of Eden there with the flaming sword. When fellowship with man was broken in the garden, the Lord set a cherubim there with this flaming sword to keep man from entering back into the garden protecting the tree of life. And here, these same cherubim are woven into the design of the veil as if to guard the way into God, saying you cannot come near to him. There's a fellowship that is broken. Of course, we see that at Jesus' death, at his crucifixion, as he hangs upon the cross and cries out, it is finished, the veil is torn, and, and, and there is entrance granted once more through the sacrificial blood of Christ as he stands in our place. As we continue in chapter 36, the construction of the tabernacle continues. I want you to read with me in chapter 36, verse 2, the results of the free will offering. These things are recorded for us. For the contributions of the tabernacle, first, the people are idolatrous. They use their goods, these, this gold, to make their own idol. But now they act in obedience to the Lord. And here, here's the results. Verse, chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel in Aholiab. If you don't recall, these are the two master craftsmen who are leading this project. And every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill 
everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. What a change in heart. First, the people are idolatrous. They're doing their own thing. But now, this is an offering unto the Lord. This is entirely voluntary. This isn't a command. No one has to participate in this. And it's so much that as they're working on the job, the, the different guys who are over the different areas have to come to Moses and be like, look, we have way too much to work with. Like, there's so many resources here. Like, tell the people to stop. We are, we have too much. The people keep bringing it every morning. They're like, let's find more. We want to keep giving to the Lord. And really, this should reflect our heart. That we're pursuing the Lord in such a way that we want to keep coming to him each morning and being like, Lord, I'm bringing you an offering, a sacrifice. I'm giving you my life. I'm laying these things down before you. Use what I'm giving you this morning. I'm giving you my, my hands. I'm giving you my thoughts. I'm giving you my, my job and the things in the, air, the sphere of influence that you have me in. I mean, I want you to use those things to, to bring glory to your name. The Lord is calling us to respond to him in this manner. There's an abundance of provision for the tabernacle. We come to chapter 37. And in chapter 37, we find the making of the Ark of the Covenant, the making of the table of showbread, and the making of the lampstand, this golden lampstand. First, they make the Ark in obedience to the Lord. This is the place where God's presence would dwell. This is a small box uh, that is made of acacia wood and is covered with gold. And there they would have a lid for this that they called the mercy seat. And God told his people that he, his presence would dwell above the mercy seat. This is where he, the, the high priest would come in and meet with the Lord on the day of atonement. They, they participate in creating this ark. The, other, the next thing that they make is the table of showbread. This is a small table, like a, maybe a, like a mini coffee table. It's kind of like what's happening here. And this table was designed to have the uh, bread, the showbread, or maybe in your Bible it might be called the bread of the presence. Uh, they would make uh, 12 loaves and they would have this bread laid out upon this table. And, and this bread was to be consumed only by the priests and it was to be eaten in the presence of the Lord. And what this bread symbolized, if you recall, is God's provision for his people. It's called the ta uh, table of showbread or the table or the bread of the presence is because it's meant to remind the people that God provides for the needs of his people and that he is aware of their needs. And it's also provided uh, for the needs of the priests. The third thing that they make in chapter 37 is the golden lampstand. This was a lampstand that illuminated the holy place. This was the primary uh, light giving instrument in the holy place. And it was a symbol of life and light. 
We see in the book of Revelation that the golden lampstand is there around God's throne. And this specific lampstand is designed to be kind of shaped like a tree. There's one central trunk and there are different arms coming off of it. It's maybe a large modern day menorah in your mind. Maybe you've seen something like that. But what this does for God's people is it brings them back. It was to be decorated with like these little, um, little like leaves on it and kind of like little bud looking things. It, it was to call to mind the garden, the garden of Eden, where God and man had fellowship together. So this is an echo back to the garden. The fourth thing that they are to make in chapter 37 is the altar of incense. This would represent the prayers of God's people. So they would offer these things, uh, th- this incense that was specifically crafted only for the tabernacle. This was an important part of the priestly ministry. The priests would pray for God's people every single day, and this symbolized, uh, was symbolized by the smoking incense. In the book of Revelation, we see that the uh, prayers of the saints are symbolized as incense collected in these bowls. They are the sweet aroma to the Lord. And so this was a specific and important ministry. The people could know that whenever the priests were in the tabernacle, they were there praying for the people of Israel. We come to chapter 38 and we see uh, four more things brought out. The making of the altar of burnt offering. The making of the bronze basin. uh, The design of the court and the materials for the tabernacle. First, they make the bronze altar. This is the place uh, where they would make sin offerings, peace offerings, wave offerings. This is the primary uh, thing that you would see when you enter into the court of the tabernacle. And it would be in constant use, making offerings unto the Lord. They would also have their, a bronze basin that they were to craft. And they, they crafted this. And at the bronze basin, they would wash uh, at different times throughout their ceremonies. And this physical washing was symbolic of a spiritual cleansing, that as they washed, they were made clean. And then the third thing we find is that they are uh, to, we have a list of, of materials that they did indeed collect for the tabernacle. Precious metals, fabric and leather, acacia wood, oil and spices, and precious stones. Now, we find that most of these things came from Exodus uh, chapter 11. We, we get a little glimpse there that these things were brought about through plundering the Egyptians. When the Lord told the children of Israel that they were going to leave the land of Egypt, he said, I'm not going to send you out empty-handed. You guys have been here slaves for 430 years. And so he said, when you go out, I'm going to Make sure that you guys plunder the Egyptians. And so as they go out, the Egyptians are just literally like giving them stuff like, take all this, get out of here. Here's like all of our gold. Here's all of our jewelry. Here's like all of our animals. Like just go, get out of here. Just giving them so much stuff. Different fabrics, linens, uh, ram skins, goat, like so much stuff. All of these things were provided by God to the children of Israel so they would go out with these blessings, but then also in kind that they would be used for his glory and in the construction of the tabernacle. Now, as we come to chapter 39, we see the making of the priestly garments. That uh, which the high priest 
and the priest would wear. This, the, the list here is specifically for the high priest. He would have a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. Uh, and then he would go through a consecration ceremony. They would ha- he would be washed with water and would be given these holy garments. After that, he would be anointed with oil. And this oil would be placed upon his head and run down uh, over his face, through his beard, onto his robes. We, we know that throughout Scripture, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, of God's anointing upon a man to do work that he has called him to. After he is anointed with oil, they would make a sin offering in this consecration ceremony. Then there would be a, a um, whole burnt offering, a consecration offering where the high priests and those who would serve in the priesthood would be fully set apart to the Lord. This is the, the offering that we um, talked more in depth about when, when we kind of camped out there for a second, where the blood would be saved and they would put the blood of the animal upon the right earlobe and the right thumb and the right big toe of the priests. This was to be the favored side, you know, the right hand uh, is the dominant hand, and, and so they were saying that th- that is the most important side, but I'm left-handed, so I'm like, what? No, that's not happening. The right-handed people would have, uh, or those, the right hand was considered the dominant side, and so it was saying that you are giving the best, the entirety, the totality of yourself unto the Lord. That which you hear would be set apart to the Lord. That which you used your hands for would be set apart to the Lord. Wherever you walked, that would be something that would be set apart to the Lord. As God's people, we are called to be a kingdom of priests. He's told us that's who we are. We find that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Peter repeats this for us in his epistle, that we are a kingdom of priests to our God. And so this means, likewise, we are set apart for God's work. And so we ought to take that charge seriously that the priests originally were uh, charged with in the consecration ceremony. That which you use your ears for, your hands, your feet, it ought to be set apart to the Lord. Don't use them for sinful things. After this consecration offering, then they would have an wave offering. They would uh, perform this wave offering, and then they would go through this ceremony again for the remaining days of the week. This would be repeated again and again for the course of a week in the installation of these priests. This is what we find in chapter 39. And so they were indeed obedient. Now as we come to chapter 40, we'll look a little bit more closely We read in, uh, of the tabernacle finally being constructed. This tabernacle being uh, completed, it's erected all in one day. We read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Here it is. First day, the first month, New Year's Day. Boom. We're making this thing. 
Notice the timing here. God tells Moses to set this up on the first day, which was the anniversary of Israel's exodus from Egypt. One year to the very day. A year ago, they were cornered at the Red Sea, and God opened a way when there was no way, and he rescued them. He leads them through the the Red Sea on dry land to the other side, while assuring their safety through the destruction of the Egyptian army. He says, you guys are a new nation now. I'm rescuing you. I'm giving you a new beginning. And now here, a year later, the children of Israel construct the tabernacle. And again, they are getting a new beginning. This event in chapter 40 is the culmination. It is the purpose for which they had been rescued from Egypt. If you recall, every time Moses went to Pharaoh, what did he say? The Lord wants you to let my people go. Let them go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. It wasn't just for their freedom, but that, so that they could enter into a relationship with God, so they could serve him, so they could worship him. And again and again, Moses said this to Pharaoh. The purpose is so that they might know and enjoy God in the wilderness. And finally, they are able to do this. They have all the pieces together Chapter 40, they begin to build this. We find that they do this all the way up through chapter, or excuse me, through verse 33. Read with me. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So he did it. done and then it says so Moses finished the work so Moses finished the work there's an interesting thing that's being that's happening here and it's a little bit more plain in the original language but I'm going to give it to you in English and we'll see if we can draw these comparisons together. In Genesis chapter 22, or not 22, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. They're using the exact same phrasing here. What happened after God rested on the seventh day? After the work was finished, he had fellowship with man again. And so here it's drawing these new comparisons again and saying, Moses is participating in a new creation that God is doing, that he has initiated, that he is going to bring heaven down to earth so that he might have some level of fellowship with his people again. Moses finished the work. It has been accomplished. And so in the minds of those original readers, when they hear that phrase, it would have perked up their ears and they would have been like, we've heard this before. The work has been finished. Where where is that? They would remember, oh yeah, back in the garden where man had fellowship with God once more. And so they had an expectation. We're out here in the wilderness. We're, We're out here saved 
from Egypt to know and enjoy God and the work is finished. And so there would have been some sort of expectation that would have come. The children of Israel had obeyed God's commands. They constructed the tabernacle. And now they were waiting to see the fulfillment of the promise that God had made back in chapter 29. This is what God told them in Exodus 29, verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. I will dwell among them, he says. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, they said, they understood that God said, I'm going to dwell among my people. They finished the work, they obeyed, and so their expectation is that God is going to dwell among them. And indeed, the Lord does come down and dwell with his people. Look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this cloud comes down, this pillar of cloud, it comes down and it completely covers the tent of meeting. This is the, the um, inner section of the tabernacle. It completely covers the tent of meeting. And the cloud is God's presence with the children of Israel. And so when they saw the cloud, it would remind the children of Israel of God's presence with them in the past. Just a year ago, the pillar of cloud was there at the Red Sea, separating them from the Egyptian army. The pillar of cloud led them from that point all the way to Mount Sinai. They knew that this was God's presence. And so God's presence demonstrated to them that he was pleased with their obedience. It was his seal of approval upon their work. All that they had done, they had demonstrated that they had turned from the idol that they had created in chapter 32. And so God's, this cloud comes down, God's cloud comes down, and then it tells us, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's a very uh, generic kind of phrasing, and it doesn't really capture the weight of what really happens here. But this cloud comes down, and the words that are, uh, are used in this um, original text are like this pulsating, glowing light that is, you know, like the most spectacular, I guess, kind of light show that you would see like this bright white pulsating light radiating out of of the tabernacle and and it's so bright it's so glowing that it, it, the cloud comes down but god god's glory fills the tabernacle it god comes and he takes his place upon the ark of the covenant and there's just rays shooting out it's lighting up all of the heavenly scene inside and the patterns that of the angels that were there and, and this thing is just it's not literally on fire, but it is on fire. It is crazy how bright this is. It's a huge glow. And so much so that it was completely overwhelming. Verse 35 tells us, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This 
God's glory is so, uh, so expansive, so bright and radiant that even Moses can't come near. He is outside the tabernacle. His, God's overwhelming, overpowering presence is here. Now, there's a couple things that we want to note here. God comes to dwell with his people, but Moses didn't have the ability to just stroll in whenever he felt like it. You come to God on God's terms. You don't come on your own. God is making himself available, but you have to come when he makes the way. God is holy. And so you have to approach his presence on his terms. God would indicate to Moses when it was time to come near. But one of the things that I think that Moses is doing here when he um, writes this way and, and, and what God does here in this moment is he's laying out for us the importance of sacrifice. You see, God's glory has come down. His presence is dwelling there. But the people haven't started to make sacrifices. They're not coming with atonement. So no one can enter yet. It's no wonder that as the book of Exodus ends, and we turn to the book of Leviticus, we have all the laws for the Levitical priesthood on how to make sacrifices. In first like beginning is just chock full of like, here's how to make all these offerings as if the Lord is saying, you should learn how to make these offerings before you try to enter in. And so Moses cannot approach. However, we have access to God because we approach on the merits of his own son. We approach not through the sacrifice of our own Selves, we don't approach on the sacrifice of lambs and bulls, but we approach on the merits of the Son of God, who is the radiance of the glory of God. And so although Moses didn't have access, we have now access today because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Verse 36, throughout all the journeys... Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. It set all of the house of Israel, uh, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. So God's Glory abides with Israel in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Providing shade in the day, providing warmth in the night, a beacon of light, letting the people know that God's presence was there with them. Even while they slept, the Lord did not sleep. He was there guiding, protecting them, watching over them. And whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, 
the children of Israel would move forward. And so they were trying to make their way to this land that God promised to them, which comes to be called the promised land, of course. And they're on their way there, but they don't go their own way. They go where God tells them to go. And so they will arrive in this land of God's promises with God's guidance and in God's timing. As long as God leads his people, they're going to be okay. And as long as they obey, they're going to get to the right place at the right time. But so often, the way that we treat God is like, okay, well, I see what you're doing, but I'm going to go over here because I see a shortcut. Well, it's like, that's not really a shortcut, that's danger. So we need to be patient with the Lord. Wherever he is leading and guiding us, we need to go. We need to go in that manner. I don't know what he's doing, but he knows what he's doing. We don't need to fear because he's with us. And if he's with us, he will direct us to that land of promise to which he guides us. And so in chapter 40, God's glory fills the tabernacle. God dwells among his people. In fact, this is the climax of the book of Exodus. That God comes down and dwells among his people. However, this is not the climax of the whole of Scripture. It's only a foreshadowing of the true climax of Scripture where God comes down and dwells with his people in flesh. This is what we begin to celebrate in Advent. The incarnation that God would come down and dwell with his people. John tells us that this is what Jesus did in John chapter 1, that the Word, who is Jesus, was made flesh and he dwelt among us. We see Paul's words describing this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He says that Jesus emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this glory of God coming and dwelling with his people only points us to the incarnation, that Christ ultimately comes down and he dwells among his people, living a perfect life in our place paying for our sin as the perfect sacrifice and as the perfect mediator over that sacrifice, over that covenant. And as a result, Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God, now indwells his people. So not only does, he, not only does God come down and dwell with his people, but then he pays for our sins and then he indwells his people. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 Paul writes, he has done this so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That Christ may dwell in your hearts and that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
How wonderful that Christ would come and dwell with his people. But even more so, we find in, in, in that verse 19 there that we're filled with the fullness of God, which we, are, we know from Colossians chapter 2. In Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. So we're, it's saying that Christ indwells his people. Verse 10, he says, and you've been filled in him. So when you trust in Christ for salvation, not only do you receive salvation, but the God who dwelt separate from the children of Israel because of his holiness and their unholiness now lives inside, dwells within his people. Paul, lastly, he describes this in Colossians 1. He says, this is so amazing this, this is a mystery. It's, it's, it's a, a wonderful mystery. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's, that's how he describes it. A wonderful mystery. That Christ is in you. The hope of glory. So Jesus is with us. He's in us. And it's important that we understand this. Because too often we think, oh, Jesus, thank you for saving me and for rescuing me, but I'm like, I'm good now, thanks. But we've not been saved from our bondage and from our sin to go off and do our own thing, much like the children of Israel. We're not rescued from Egypt to go off and do their own thing and wander around. God said, let my people go so that they might worship me in the wilderness. He wants to have a relationship with them. And so the point of Jesus rescuing us is so he could be with us, not so he could be separate from us. He wants to have a relationship with us that will go on forever. The point of our salvation is so that we might know him, enjoy him, and glorify him. But it gets better. Because still we wait for an even greater glory that which will be revealed at the return of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this, verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. How radical is that? Not only will Christ indwell us, but then we will see him bodily as he returns, and he will return with power and great glory glory. He will return with power and great glory. We will have relationship with our God. And there won't be any need for a tabernacle. We won't need to approach him through a tabernacle at that point. As he receives us to himself, we'll just have a wonderful and direct, open relationship. Here's how we have it finally described. We'll, we'll end with this verse. I'm going to give you two verses in the book of Revelation, if you might want to flip over there, because this is going to be like an anchor for you. Revelation chapter 21. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, 
and God himself will be with them as their God. How crazy is that? God's dwelling place is with man. So even when we come to see him, know him, and Jesus comes, and, and we see him in power, in great glory, it's not to be separated from him because the dwelling place of God will be with man. He's going to come and dwell among us. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. No tabernacle. Verse 22. And I saw no temple. Same, more like a permanent tabernacle. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No tabernacle. God will dwell among his people. He will come and dwell, tabernacle, among his people. The dwelling place of God is with man. God's glory has come down in Christ, but we will wait for him. And we, we look forward to that day where we will see him face to face. That's what, what the longing, that's why we can identify with the longing of those at the first Christmas. When we sang that song earlier, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, we are singing those same thoughts, expecting the return of Christ to know and enjoy him, that he will return again and we will see him in power and great glory. So we have that same longing, that same expectation. And so Christmas not only trains us to reflect upon what Christ has done, but calls us to look forward to what he will do in rescuing us and saving us. We will know him and enjoy him and we will be with him forever. Paul speaks of this same thought of the return of Christ and uh, his epistle to the Thessalonians. And he ends it this way. And I love this because it reminds us to keep our eye on the ball. Because it's easy to get caught up with like the busy and the present and the here and now. He speaks of the return of Christ and then he says this. Encourage one another with these words. The return, the, the imminent return of Christ, that we will see him in power and glory should be a massive encouragement to us. We should be encouraged when we hear about that. That the glory of God, the radiance of his glory in Christ, we will see him, we will know him, and he will dwell among his people. For the dwelling place of God is with man. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us and that you have given us new life in your Son. We celebrate you this morning. We celebrate the work that you have accomplished with the children of Israel, rescuing and saving them. But Lord, drawing out this pattern so that we might see the beauty of Jesus and, the, and your love and care for us and your return. Lord, we want to uh, respond, Lord, with that expectation and that longing for you to come again. Until the work in our hearts as we develop, Lord, that practice of, of waiting for you and looking forward to that day where you will dwell among your people. And so, Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to be people who are encouraging each other with those words, reminding each other of the reality 
of your return, that we will see you and we will know you uh, in such a short period of time. Come and receive us again to yourself, Lord, we love you. Amen.